This isn't a. So Abby from Bright Farms brought this out. This isn't a tin, a plastic tin. This is, but this is from today. It is. Okay. I'm very fresh. It's delicious. This is kale. Yeah. Yep. Good. Tastes great. Yeah, you can taste the algorithms. I can taste the algorithms. Yeah. That sun feels optimized. <laughs> It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. On today's show, a visit to a data-driven farm, growing lettuce and arugula and more, all in an enormous greenhouse environment controlled through an app. Data-driven farming is what the investor types like to call a real growth industry. In fact, this week's guest won TechCrunch Disrupt, the big Silicon Valley dog and pony show that takes place each year. And this kind of food production is going to change farms big and small, indoor and outdoor, which in turn means it will change the food we eat, the way our farms adapt to climate change, and so on and so forth. We'll start the farm adventure in a minute, but first, as always, a number that caught our eye this week, also about the way we eat, it's the significant digit. Excuse me. Give it. Give a sec. Okay. Um, so can I tell you a number? Sure. The number is 24%, which is I was looking at some of the economic data from last year, and an index of a bunch of what are called fast casual dining restaurants, places like Chipotle and Panera and Potbelly and so forth, dropped by 24% last year. Okay. That's pretty surprising, actually. Their profits are down 24%? Yeah, stock index. Okay. I mean, the w- one specific that you brought up, Chipotle, I know is not doing well, but uh, others that I would think in the same industry would be doing better. They have the connotation that they're a little bit healthier, and but it's kind of hard to tell. And so where do you eat for lunch? I just came from Chipotle. Really? Yeah. So you're trying to keep their stock price up? <laughs> not necessarily, but it was the fastest and easiest option. So that person who we caught coming back from Chipotle was Brian Schiller. And here to talk a little bit more and give some context on that 24% number is Anna Barry Jester, who writes about health and food for 538. Anna, welcome to What's the Point? Hi, Jody. Thanks for having me. So do you want to talk a little bit about that 24% number? Is there more context that we need to know? Yeah. So after Chipotle's early runaway success, when it sort of split from McDonald's, there was a lot of excitement about these fast casual restaurants, they're called. And so a whole bunch of regional chains went public in 2013 and 2014. And their initial stock prices were incredibly high. So it's some of this stock price drop is more about those early prices being inflated and less about you know problems or lack of sales in these restaurants. He framed these uh, fast casual places as kind of positioning themselves as the healthy alternative or at least healthy seeming alternative to places like McDonald's. Is that kind of general trend still going? Are these places still kind of taking a bite out of McDonald's? There are some problems with Chipotle that we can get to in a minute. But yeah, there's still a lot of interest in these places that are, you know, promoting what they say are humane treatment of animals, uh, meat that doesn't that doesn't use antibiotics, fresh fruits and vegetables, less things that are frozen. You can also customize your food. They try and make the environment a little bit more, um, you know, tailored to each city that they're in rather than just these, you know, like McDonald's where it's you're supposed to go in and know exactly what you're going to see every time you go to McDonald's, no matter where it is. So you're kind of a watcher of our relationship with food, I guess, if you want to put it in a highfalutin way. But, uh, you know, where do you see this going? I mean, do you feel like we are becoming more and more interested in healthy and slower food and even our sort of fast options are going to start to reflect that more and more? 
Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But the stuff with Chipotle is pretty interesting. I mean, they didn't, they had, at the end of the year, they had some very famous, if you will, outbreaks. Um, but they had problems throughout the year. This week, they just announced that they've got a subpoena from the federal government. They're under investigation for this norovirus outbreak in California earlier in the year. But they also had several separate E. coli outbreaks as well as salmonella. And part of that is that, you know, they aren't freezing things. They aren't doing these things that sort of maybe don't make the food taste as good, but definitely doesn't automate it in a way that can get around these food outbreaks. Oh, so you're kind of saying there's like an inherent tension there between trying to be big and franchised and all over the country and then also trying to be like local and slow and all those other things. Right. When you're preparing in the local kitchen, you don't have as much control as if there's like a central facility where everything's controlled and, you know, prepared under strict controlled hygiene standards and then it's shipped off frozen to the individual restaurants. Well, Anna Barry Jester, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, our visit to Bright Farms in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. I recently drove out there with Jordan, who does videos for 538, and Sarah, our intern, to check out an indoor farm, a giant greenhouse, basically, powered by data. Jordan, you think we're in the right spot? Looks like a farm. That's true. The greenhouse is about a full acre and is located in farming country. It actually sits on a much bigger outdoor farm. What do you do when you when you get to the door of a greenhouse? Do you just knock? Inside the greenhouse, the plants don't grow in dirt, but instead on heavy-duty boards that you then place into soil and feed nutrients. As you'll hear, there are also fans and pipes running at all times, which means that it's kind of loud inside the greenhouse. Hi, Jody. Allison. Nice to finally meet you. Yeah. yeah. So we met up with Allison Kopp, co-founder of Agrilist, the startup that builds software and analytics for farms like this. We went into the greenhouse to chat and look at the plants. Here we go. And we're looking at a sign that says, before you enter the greenhouse, sign into the guest sheet, which is nice. I make that make people do that when they come over to my house, too. Uh, but put shoe covers over your shoes, put on a hairnet, wash your hands thoroughly, keep food it sterile. Safety. Yeah, food safety is a big thing for, for food production um, because we don't want to get anyone sick. All right, let's do it. So now we're in the greenhouse. We are. It's warm. It's, it's really warm. warm. Yeah, we try and they. The, so the idea is that you want to keep the environment here um, ideal for the plants. Plants like warmer than we do. But what about the people? <laughs> yeah, it's not as great it's for so warm for us. Yeah, so you can imagine what it's like in the summertime. Yeah, <laughs> and just a little bit of what you're looking at here. You're looking at plants like arugula, spinach, uh, radicchio. Well, well pronounced. <laughs> yeah. So where's the data? Yeah. So the data lives. All around, um, we as humans see it on a computer and a phone, but the plants see it in a variety of different ways. Everything that's motorized in the greenhouse, so you can see fans, you can see lights are on, um, you can see that there's actually vents here um, that will be able to be open or closed depending on how warm it does get in here. Um, there's pumps, there's valves, there's water. Uh, each of those different pieces that affects how the plants grow contains a set of data that we care about. I mean, what what do the sensors look like? I mean, does every plant have like a sensor on it? Some do. Some of it is very manual. So uh, some of the plants will have, like, actually, um, um, okay, so in the middle of the greenhouse, that box that you see, 
um, will actually have sensors on it. So you can see things like temperature and humidity and CO2, that's sensor data. Um, things like how the plants are performing at different rates or how fast they're growing, that's all been taken by hand previously. So our job as a software company is to make sure that you have a tool that takes some of that handwritten data and eliminates it um, and then provides analytics uh, overlaying things like sensor data and manual data to get um, a better performance and an optimized performance. So we drove like an hour and a half out here yeah. and we're, you know, technically I guess on a farm, but we're like in a... Yeah, we're green, actually in a cornfield. A but cornfield we're like driving. in a house sitting on a cornfield. So how does this qualify as a farm? Um, so it's funny because we we love the idea of being on a farm. I love the idea of them being on a farm here because it's the uh, sort of juxtaposition of old, old school, non-technological farming um, sort of ag... 2.0, I guess. You had Ag 1.0, which is like traditional farming. Ag 2.0 was tractor farming. Um, and this is Ag 3.0, where there's the introduction of data. You care about things like sustainability and efficiency more than you do about outdoor farming. Um, so you have this sort of ju- nice juxtaposition of there's corn and there's soybeans. And then here is food that we eat as humans um, and grown in a way that uh, is really thoughtful about how, how to grow it. What does local mean when it's inside of a building that would look exactly the same as it would look anywhere else in the world. I know that it's, it's, I mean, local is important for a number of reasons. One, it's, uh, it's getting to you faster, so it's going to be healthier and fresher, um, but it's also going to last longer. So areas like supermarkets care a lot about that because um, shrink rates are, are huge and uh, hugely important to them. So how fast does produce go bad? Um, if you can get that produce and you can eliminate the seven-day shipping cycle from California to New York, um, you're going to have a longer-lasting piece of produce. This is one of the, the things I'm most interested in, which is how much are you just making what farmers have always done more efficient, and how much are you creating new information that wasn't possible before? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. So we, um, the first layer of information that we care about is that manual data. So um, when you come into this greenhouse and you put those boards out there, um, you create information, and that information has tra- traditionally been taken by hand. So you create. a a spreadsheet or you write it down on a clipboard um, and you store that information but you don't really look at it and you don't really draw correlations between that and something like sensor data. So the first piece is getting that information into a database. The second piece is then overlaying all that information to create new data sets. So you're saying, um, I created these these, um, pieces of paper, they had seeding information and harvest information, Um, but now I can look at how that performs against temperature and humidity and light levels. And you can start to say, well, how do I increase my lighting or how do I decrease my lighting based on costs um, and plant performance? And how do you come up with those optimal recipes for how a plant can grow best? Let's talk a little bit about scale here, right? Yeah. So, Because this is a big greenhouse. I will, can probably say this is the biggest greenhouse I've ever seen. <laughs> but it's not like a huge industrial farm. This is about, I would say, an acre, um, just a little bit under an acre in size for, for lettuces and for greens. Um, this is a relatively large facility here in the United States. But does this scale up to big, big farms, this data-driven farming world? Yeah, absolutely. So um, even with Bright Farms, this is a small, uh, this is a small farm for their, their standard model. Their next farm uh, is somewhere between three and five acres. The idea that you can build out a more sustainable food system and ship to local local areas is something that big farms 
don't necessarily think about as much. And, and so you have data-driven, large-scale, or controlled environment agriculture as opposed to um, big farms that are shipping and feeding our food supply chain across the country. Now are the big... Monsanto Farms using data? Yeah, absolutely. So we um, so we care specific, very specifically about controlled environment agriculture. So we care about this box, this very hot box <laughs> of produce. We care about um, when you have inputs like lighting and, and heating and CO2 and, and uh, you know humidity, and you can control those things because you can control their, by your profit margin. Um, in outdoor ag, it's sort of similar, but it's a different... It's a different beast. So in outdoor agriculture, you care about things by nature that are beyond your control. You care about things like temperature, um, weather. You care about the water. You care about soil conditions. Um, and so outdoor growers are starting to also wake up and use data. Um, things like uh, on tractor control, um, drones. There's a lot of drone use. There's drone farm. farming? Oh, yeah. It's like the hot new thing for, for investment. Just anything. You can just put drone in front of any industry and <laughs> hot, people will just go crazy for it. sector, yeah. So drones but you can do things like land mapping with drones um, that you weren't able to do from the ground. So you can do aerial mapping to understand soil conditions and water conditions and try to understand what plants should grow where. So maybe corn grows really well in the southwest quadrant because there's there's great water conditions there, great nutrient conditions for corn, um, but it doesn't grow well 10 acres down. Um, nitrogen control and delivery is a big thing, as well as automated water delivery. Um, so smarter water delivery, as we can see things like the California drought getting hugely affected um, or hugely affecting agriculture. Do you care about getting bigger and bigger and bigger? Do you want to play at that scale, or is this one-acre greenhouse mostly your world? Yeah, so for us, um, from a data perspective, the bigger you are, the more data you have. So it gets very interesting to us the more, the more and more data that we can collect. You can have this food system that gets more sustainable and more efficient, um, and you can start to do things like growing in weather-independent environments um, so things like the drought don't affect you as much. And you can start to build up these systems that care about the environment that they're within. Um, and so we, from a data perspective, care about that generally. But our job is to make each and every individual farm in that industry more efficient and more sustainable so that the whole global industry becomes more sustainable um, and more efficient overall. What have like farmers said when you come to them with this idea? Is there resistance? Actually, a lot of the outdoor world has helped with this because data has sort of become um, really important to growers outside. And so if you can jump on your tractor and now have um, an understanding of soil production and, and all these things that you didn't necessarily have before, um, they get it. And so the indoor world is understanding that now they have tons more data. So the opportunity... But there isn't this like old school farmer, like you don't need, I don't well, need you coming in and telling me. Well, especially in the indoor farms is everybody's coming from other industries or, or from horticultural backgrounds, but um, has experience working. We're in the age of Slack and Salesforce and, and NetSuite. There's and so Farm Slack? Have, no, there's not Farm Slack. We're Farm Slack. No, we're not Farm Slack. But um, we're essentially the combination of all of these different SaaS platforms or ERP systems that just don't work for the farm world. Um, geared exactly towards the farm world. Um, and so we wanted to be very tailored towards and cognizant of the things that farmers are concerned about. So things like data security, things like um, how do I use it and how easy it is to use. Um, I don't want to be looking at data every day, but I can see what I have to do on a day-to-day basis. That's helpful to me. So really cognizant of how, how growers are a different type of user than maybe you or I. What does a data breach look like in, in the farming world? It's interesting. Um, so data, data, there isn't necessarily a data breach concern. It's more about um, the competition in the industry and, and the idea that 
um, all of your data is, is yours. And you should own that data, and you should be able to make decisions based off that data. The anonymous aggregation of data is helpful to us because it helps the algorithms get smarter. Um, but the idea that you and I have different farms, um, you shouldn't have my information directly, and I shouldn't have yours. Uh, and that's really where growers care about security. I'm curious where where do you where do you come at this from? Are you coming at it from a I love food and agriculture side, or are you coming at it from a data side? Came from the solar end. Um, was studied physics, went into solar, was on the data end of solar, um, and then when the solar industry crashed in Silicon Valley in 2010 with the crash of Solyndra, um, was looking for something else to do and met Paul Lightfoot at Bright Farms, where we are now, um, who was forming this company at the time. And the idea that you could build a more sustainable food system and um, and that there were so many opportunities for improvement in the agricultural system um, was r- sort of riveting to me at the time. In this facility, I learned more and more that the system of data collection was really archaic and that other industries in the, in the world had um, had sort of this huge gap of technology over where we were here. And um, the idea that we were still writing everything down on paper seemed insane to me because we couldn't derive any insights from it. So started AgriList with that intention of building that platform that would help growers across the world um, understand their data and use it and, and be empowered by data to make better decisions every day. But is there a values element to this? Yeah. I, mean- um, I think that we are not paying attention enough to the idea that we have to increase food production so much um, by just a few years. 2050 is not that far away. It's not a century. It's, um, you know, it's close. And we have to do tremendous changes in the food system to get there. Um, And we have to do that with with these sort of climate changes in front of us. And I'm really passionate about that. I think it's really exciting. I think it's really nerve-wracking that we have these big challenges. But uh, but I think for entrepreneurs and for people in this industry, it's a really exciting time to jump into creating the solutions that are going to get us there. You won TechCrunch Disrupt. Yes. What was that? What was that like? <laughs> it was really exciting. We certainly didn't expect to have AgTech be this new sexy sort of solution um, that we didn't really forecast. AgTech being agriculture technology. Yes. So let me let me tell you one impression I have of TechCrunch Disrupt, which is it's this place where Silicon Valley goes and kind of talks to itself and convinces itself that it's like the most important place in the world and it's going <laughs> to change the world. So you can disabuse me of that read, but I am curious how much of an element uh, there is in your work of that kind of like techno-utopianism? So we are not as concerned about that world as much as I think other people who want to be in the industry are. Um, I think that put us... You did not say we're going to change the world or we're going to disrupt <laughs> disrupting X. the agriculture industry. Did you say those words? No. <laughs> those words did not come out of Good my mouth. It's really funny because so we built the software as like a very granular tool of how do growers improve their operations by being empowered by data? And we started with that kernel, and we developed a piece of software that you know we get really nerdy and excited about, um, but we did not expect the tech community and the world to get excited about. So let me tell you where this kind of makes me a little uncomfortable, yeah. which is just there. there's the whole sort of slow food, farm-to-table movement, which I feel like you're part of to some extent. 
it feels like your your values are aligned with that. But then anytime you talk about sort of ruthless efficiency and farming, <laughs> I get a little nervous. What we're trying to do is um, help farmers operate in the most cost-effective, most efficient way to them. So it's not... Um, it's not sort of mechanizing the system or ruthless efficiency. It's really more of um, eliminating those or, or optimizing those trade-offs so that you get the most you can get out of the farm while spending the least amount of money. But how do you see your work fitting into the kind of push towards slow food and organic and, and that whole kind of values-driven food economy? We think that the industry is going to move hugely towards indoor farming. It's not going to replace outdoor farming, but it's going to be a part of the solution towards how we get to those efficiency and sustainability goals. Indoor farms have the ability, unlike outdoor, massive outdoor farms, to provide local food. They have the opportunity to provide more sustainable, healthier, fresher produce that lasts longer because it has a larger shelf life. Um, and that is exciting to us. You, you mentioned climate change. How much of a factor is that in the work that you're doing, and how much does data-driven farming kind of help? Um, so we see it immediately with the California drought. So this year alone, California farmers lost about a million acres in production um, in production area because of the drought, which is, I mean, that's a big number uh, in one year alone. And so there's a farm in Irvine that started moving production indoors as well because they didn't want to lose that production value. Um, so instead of felling crops and, and letting crops die, essentially, or not growing in certain areas, they moved indoor production and kept their production live. Um, and, and we're seeing that trending across the U.S. So it's basically that climate change is making things more unpredictable. And in order to have more control, you just kind of got to move indoors? Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, in outdoor crops, there's the reason that crop insurance exists is because a lot of times the weather is unpredictable. And so um, you can have all of your investment and all of your work going into a farm, and one year maybe there's a, a drought, or maybe one year there's over rain, and you lose your entire crop, and so um, you just don't get anything out of the farm. And so the food system and the dependency of the food system becomes unreliable. Um, whereas in indoor farming, the whole benefit is that you're controlling everything that you can... Um, that you're producing. So you can, in essence, set your volumes that are coming out of a facility at any given time. So what we're looking at as a software company and a data company is how you play with those different inputs to get still the most out of it, but but while taking advantage of things like cost efficiency. Uh, in, a, in an enclosed factory farm, you're setting your lights and you're running them 24-7. You know that. Um, so there's issues about how much energy use is involved with producing plants and how much um, sort of rote efficiency there is. Um, so a lot of where I think it's really exciting is areas like um, Japan. There's certain regions where uh, outdoor farmers can't actually grow anything because of the radiation levels in the air. Um, and Whoa. so... Yeah, and so um, and so they've moved all of their farm production indoors because they have to feed their population. So the idea that you can still grow locally, um, where you physically could not grow outside, um, I think that's exciting. And is there any kind of farming conventional wisdom that you feel like you're? data has upended? So we'll never replace the grower sort of end of things. Um, there's always a combination of how you use technology as a tool as opposed to a replacement of a job. Um, because a lot of growing changes every day. Um, a lot of the plants will behave. The plant, You can control everything in the greenhouse and the plants may still perform differently today than they did yesterday. So we see data as being really critical as, as being as a tool as opposed to sort of replacing institutional knowledge. 
you, you mentioned that the plants will be different every day. I mean, how close to kind of perfect efficiency do you think you can get? It depends on what your growing conditions are. So here we're in a greenhouse where things, you can see that there are just different points of inflection. You can see, you know, some of the panes are different color than the other ones or aging happens to the greenhouse differently. Um, the more and more you get into sort of a clean room um, pharmaceutical production or these enclosed warehouses and factory farming in Japan, um, then you're setting every single condition um, and there's not much variation among the plants. So uh, aside from things like diseases and, and um, being introduced into the facility, uh, the more and more you can get towards a clean room, the more you can really set the exact quality and control of, of volumes coming out of that facility. And ha- how do you feel about that? I mean, do you want plants to be their own nuanced uh, living creatures or do you want them to just be like data points that behave? <laughs> I mean, I'm a data nerd, so <laughs> I do like the data aspect. Um, but at the same time, I think the plants are living things no matter what. You can have them in a clean environment. They're still they're still living things. Any advice for my jade tree, which is I don't know, I just quickly dying? Ba- I just killed my basil plant. Everyone told me that every single person can control basil um, and can. That's grow not, it. by the way. I wouldn't like put that in your deck. But no. you can't grow a basil I can't plant grow a basil at home. Plant. No, I, I was away for a week and I came back and my basil plant was dead, which was sad. Um, as I was driving in here, I pictured in my head a farmer wakes up in the morning, walks out into their field, and like pulls out their iPad. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so the things that we care—that's true. Yeah, absolutely. So you've got your phone out. Yeah. Um, so what's open right now is seeding plan management. So this is one of the most important things because it's how growers understand what's going into the greenhouse at any given time. So you want to create um, whatever you're seeding for the day. So maybe it's a fall lettuce template and we'll seed for today. So there's a little drop down menu that has bolsa chica, which (laughs) I've never heard of, but it also has arugula, which I've heard of. And we'll say that it's going into this pond here. So you're setting the num- kind of the number of units and how yeah. long and you're we'll going to grow them for. The boards are only going to grow for one day because they are super fast growing plants. And then what we care about is at any given time what's happening to those boards. So then we'll go into things like graphs and we can see um, how the light levels in this area are performing. So what we're looking at here is a graph with uh, light levels over time. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, you care about how much light the plants can, um, they want to see a certain amount of light, you want to give that light to them, and then you can begin to optimize sort of when that light is delivered to the plants. Like will your phone buzz and yeah. say there's not enough light in sector one? <laughs> exactly. It's like it's like we live in robot times or something. But um, yeah, that's right. So we'll give notifications to the grower of um, you're not getting enough light, or we think that you can change your lighting scheme to take advantage of some cost savings. What's the picture of the modern farmer? Is it just, I mean, is it sitting at a desk in front of a computer or sitting with an I- on a couch with an iPad? We like to think our grower is out here with the iPad, and that's what the, the mobile enables you to do. Is if that you're surrounded you by plants while plants. you're on your iPad, it counts as farming? It counts as farming. So I, only, I have one more question, which is, can we eat any of these plants that we're standing around? Yeah, absolutely. So... Here's some kale that was harvested today. Okay, this is in a... So Abby from Bright Farms brought this out. This is in a tin, a plastic tin. This is, But this is from today. It is. Okay. I'm very fresh. It's delicious. This is kale? Yeah. Yeah. Good. Tastes great. Yeah, you can taste the algorithms. I can taste the algorithms, yeah. That sun feels optimized. <laughs> <laughs> Allison Kopp is co-founder of AgriList. Thanks to her and to Bright Farms for letting us pay a visit and eat some of their kale. 
What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Our video producer is Ryan Nantel. Jordan Shulkin also helped with video, and on our site now you can see a short film of our visit to the farms, some more from Allison and me holding a microphone up to a radicchio. Check it out, 538.com slash podcasts. Joel Werner helped mix and produce this episode. Sarah Patterson was our intern. Special thank you to Asta Chattervedi for helping with the edit. My name is Jody Avergan. You can email me at podcasts at 538.com. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, host of the Song Exploder podcast. Be sure to subscribe to What's the Point in iTunes or your favorite podcast client and give us a rating and a review. I've heard from hundreds of you who have said that your New Year's resolution was to write more iTunes reviews, so this is your chance. But seriously, when you write a review, it helps our rankings. The better our ranking, the easier it is for others to discover the show. So thank you, and thanks for listening. See you soon. Hello, What's the Point listeners? I'm Chadwick Matlin. I'm Kate Fagan. I'm Neil Payne. And together we make up the crew of Hot Takedown, 538 Sports Podcast. Kate, how would you describe the show if you had to do it in like five seconds? It's freaking awesome. Okay, Neil? We take down hot takes. Look at that. That's we- sort of the title. Good point. <laughs> so if you want to hear us talk about the week in sports news and what people are talking about in an uninformed way and ha- hear about the data and the stats and the analytics that take them down, subscribe in the iTunes store, search for Hot Takedown to find us. We'll talk to you then. Do it.